All right, this time we're talking about lemons and lemonade. The way I approach mistakes and missed opportunities or things that don't happen the way I think they will is that I'm just gaining. It involves acknowledging the systematic issue at play while also taking action to affect change. We may not see the end results in our lifetime. We are simply here to pass the baton to the next person, give them the tools they need to finish the job. It's so cool that these things exist to feel like there are people who are noticing what you did and it's not what was it like or like you know it's that gloomy tone and you're asking me how are you now and that's it's awesome that's the whole thing it just yeah. leaves you with this feeling of like well that's horrible yeah, you know exactly. like i don't know where exactly. to go from here yeah. so yeah i'm trying to and i think i don't know i never thought that i would be here enjoying my life and in a very good place things are always going to change and yeah yeah So my name is Jay Lee. I'm a woman who was previously incarcerated for four and a half years. I'm very passionate about empowering individuals to embrace their past, no matter how difficult it may have been. Whether someone was incarcerated or not, my goal is to guide people in overcoming their challenges and to provide them with the resources to become a better version of themselves. My name is Itzel Rioselas. As an artist, I think it's really important to um, be vulnerable. The things that I've gone through have been kind of difficult and have been pretty isolating. And so art has helped me express those things and get to know myself better. I'm Mark Harris. I'm an artist, activist, and educator. My name is Jessica Caldas. I am a multidisciplinary artist, and my work tends to focus on telling personal and community stories that relate to larger social issues, often gendered issues and things like that, but it runs the gamut. Each of these people were faced with a particularly bad situation, personal, political, or both, and found a way to create something genuinely good in the midst of it. Taking an injustice and turning it into an opportunity is a decently common strategy, but I want to devote some time to it because I think it says a lot about a part of human nature that's easy to forget. There are some intense topics coming, but the point of this project is to leave you feeling empowered. It's less about what they went through and more about how they dealt with it. And then some. So during my own incarceration, I found it difficult to accomplish even like the simplest of tasks. You're hit left and right with like taxes, unpaid bills, you know, preparing legal documents. We need that stuff sent out ASAP to the courts or we are denied. I felt like I was honestly losing control of my life. I mean, I did lose control of my life, being incarcerated and kidnapped unwillingly. So as I sat in my cell eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, because I made sure I ate like two every night because I was trying to gain weight, I used to just brainstorm. How can I make a solution? And I came up with this business plan. I wrote out a business plan. Inmates are us because, you know, we are somebody. We help inmates with various everyday tasks that might otherwise be difficult for them to accomplish. Organizing legal documents, scheduling appointments, writing letters to loved ones, submitting requests or appeals, emailing on their behalf, or recording podcasts for them. You know, reminding them they, they're not defined solely by their circumstances or their environment. Re-entry stuff like housing, get their resume together, already apply for jobs for them so when they come out, they can already sometimes have a job set up. It's hard for us to get jobs, but if we prep ourselves, 
you know, for those interview questions when they're going to ask us, so do you have a background or run a background check? We're able to come back with, you know, an explanation. We're able to, you know, combat that, even assisting with educational pursuits, publishing books, typing books. And even if we can't help them, being able to acknowledge that they are heard and, you know, reduce the likelihood of recidivism. One of the greatest challenges faced by incarcerated individuals is the sense of isolation and disconnection from the outside world. It can literally drive someone crazy just feeling like, you know, we're forgotten. So when we come out, we're just like closed off, not willing to accept any help from anybody. So our personal assistance service aims to bridge that gap and kind of bring a sense of caring and belonging to their lives. Empathy and genuine human interaction and nurturing their emotional well-being. So, um... I went to Carmel High School. When I moved there from Long Beach, immediately I felt pretty out of place. Long Beach is super diverse and super cool and there's so many things to see and so many people to meet. And Carmel is a very specific place with basically just one kind of person. I think that was definitely a culture shock, especially since I'm Mexican and I lived in Mexico as well. There was a lot of things that would happen under the surface that no one would really pay attention to. Everyone kind of knew what was going on, but no one would talk about it because it would all just be jokes. And it wasn't until my high school experience where I realized that a lot of the things that happened at the school were not um, not right. I was kind of scrolling on Instagram and I was starting to see a lot of really horrible news about like femicides in Mexico and Breonna Taylor and the aftermath of that. And just a lot of people who, a lot of women who were dying and I was reading a book at the time by this author who had been sexually assaulted. Um, and I just kind of realized that I was someone who also struggled. I think for a long time, I put myself in this space where, you know, just invalidating my own experience. And at that point, I just hit this boiling point and I was like, you know what, I'm gonna do this. Um, and I shared messages between my abuser and I very publicly on Instagram in great detail just so people understand how complicated rape culture is and how complicated sexual abuse can be and this movement of thousands of people just sparked across the county there's a really really big problem that's actually now being investigated because of the movement that started about sexual assault and about um, rape culture at Carmel High and a lot of the administration pushed everything that they found, all evidence, all claims of anything happening at the school under the rug. Um, the admin is now fearing a lawsuit, which is very, very probable because of how many people they've hurt. The principal has lost his job, and I was lucky enough to have an admission of guilt. A lot of people don't have that, which makes it very, very hard to validate their experiences. It's really strange and weird and cathartic to be the person at the forefront of it. A very strange feeling especially being like 20 and dealing with all of these things and walking people through like the aftermath of sexual assault and like how to take care of yourself when also you're trying to figure that out for yourself there was a period of time when I was doing civilian lobbying and working on legislation that was being blocked that was basically supposed to assist with getting rape kits processed. Like there's this huge rape kit backlog in the U.S. It was actually sort of a slew of legislation across the country around this time where people were really trying to like focus on this issue. But I think it's still a problem. 
But at that time in Georgia, there was a community of groups basically. And somebody reached out to me because they knew I was a survivor of sexual assault. And they'd already done a lot of work sharing stories around these kinds of issues and gender-based violence, both in my day job and through my artwork. And I also worked for a domestic violence project that assisted survivors with getting temporary protective orders. And so I started lobbying as a civilian. And I learned that anybody can go to a legislator in person and talk to them about a bill and be like, this is why it needs to pass or this is why it shouldn't pass. A lot of us know we can call a legislator, that we can write a letter or an email, but you can actually go in person, shake their hand and tell them a story. And it is kind of wild. At the time, I was also doing a project in public spaces where I was just making chalk X's on the ground every 107 seconds because that's how often people in the U.S. are sexually assaulted. And so it kind of all worked together in this full picture way where I felt like I was working with my own story, connecting it to a larger community of people who shared that experience, and then connecting it to some direct action where I wrote an op-ed for the newspaper about this bill and people who I'd never shared the story with were like engaging with the bill and calling and learning things. And it was just really a, a really important moment, I think, for me. And the bill did end up passing, and we did stop the bill the next year that was going to require sexual assault survivors on college campuses to go to the police. There's all sorts of reasons why that should never be a requirement. You utilize the police or you don't, often based on what you believe about the effectiveness of the police. It was interesting, the dynamic from one year of like, let's support this bill, let's make it pass, and the next year it really being much more about people misunderstanding the right way to handle an issue. The second year, I actually testified against the bill at several levels within the legislature, which was both empowering and terrifying. (laughs) When Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson, Missouri, for me was definitely a watershed event in the fact that this young man had just recently graduated from high school. His whole life was in front of him and it it was taken from him. Up until that point, I had been navigating my way through life pretty much solely concerned with how I was doing and not so much concerned about how my greater community was doing. By that I mean African Americans. You know, I felt hopeless, I felt anger, I felt a lot of emotions. I was living in San Francisco when this happened and I saw the reactions within this community in Ferguson. And it made me begin to reflect on the African American community here. I knew that I couldn't sit on the sidelines anymore as these things kept happening. I sat with this feeling of anger and frustration and sadness over the murder of this young man and others. And I said, in that moment, at that very moment that I was upset, what did I have to offer? And it was my artistic ability. And I started looking for ways to do art education with at-risk youth specifically. I have been able to take advantage of opportunities because of how I was brought up, because of the things that I had accessible to me as a child. I've been able to recognize those opportunities and I've had enough of the skills to know how to enter those opportunities and then grow from those opportunities. A lot of African-American young men don't have a father like I had. And my dad wasn't perfect by any means, but he was there and he did the best that he could. And I know that there are a lot of young boys that don't even have that. And so I got my first opportunity at Tenderloin Elementary in San Francisco. If you don't know anything about San Francisco, the Tenderloin is Uh, underserved area that's been neglected and there's a lot of problems there. 
And so it was a perfect place to start. It's really just to show up in these kids' life as a normal adult that looks like them, that's not dealing with any trauma. And that's what I did. And your art changed too, right? My art changed, yeah, yeah. So my artwork began to reflect my perceptions of these tragedies that were happening every two months, it seemed like, at that time. It was very cathartic for me. It was for my own emotional well-being. But I found that it was impacting others because there's always someone that's experiencing what you are and then some. These stories have several things in common, but one maybe obvious similarity is a kind of decision to do what needed to be done despite a lack of experience or even comfort. I didn't have a lot of training working with kids. I didn't have any training teaching art. I don't have a bunch of degrees behind my name. I'm just a regular person who was concerned about an issue. I kind of did everything by myself. I had to be on my own in a lot of ways. I, I, my parents didn't even know at the time that this was all happening. We had just lost our house in the wildfires during lockdown. We had no place to live really, so I was living with my boyfriend in a family friend's house that I didn't even know. So <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a tough time. And honestly, I think about it and I'm like, how did I even do that? How did we do that as a family? Like, it's only been two years, but still, I mean, it's been two years of me figuring out how to help people in very small ways, in ways that I can while trying to enjoy my my youth, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but also dealing with these really insane topics and helping other people heal from their experiences. Even moms would reach out to me and be like, I went to Carmel High in the 90s, it was the same, and what do I do? And I'm like, yeah. I don't know, but we'll figure this out. Honestly, establishing Inmates R West was a difficult process, and every day I just strive to improve and develop our operations to ensure smooth functioning. So it's just like a lot of trial and error. People really don't know the sacrifices some people make to keep their business going, and it's hard. And it's hard, I think, harder for me because um, I have a hard time networking, and I have a hard time networking because I don't trust a lot of people. I don't trust a lot of people because I got locked up, everyone left. So I feel like I'm just doing this on my own and I'm trying to learn how to network to help build my business up further and you know put more trust into people. That's why you have to be passionate about the issue because that has to outweigh the fear, the knocking knees, the shortness of breath, the sweaty brow, that's gonna happen. But your commitment to the issue has to push you beyond those things, right? You have to feel that fear and then do it anyway because people have done it for us. That's why you and I are sitting here talking to each other. 70 years ago, I could have lost my life for sitting down talking to you like this, right? And, and you too, and you too. So passion and courage, and then you just have to be committed to doing your part. I know I struggled with a lot, but I don't get emotional when I talk about it anymore. I mean, I get emotional that I got through it and that I, I'm very proud of myself, yeah. but I don't get like this feeling of like regret or shame at all. Like. I would do it again and again, and I'm so happy that I did. Part of my goal is to celebrate and highlight victories and find ways to be hopeful about the future via successes, however small. But the underlying subtext there is that these issues are so entrenched, so big, and so systematic that it can be hard to approach, even if you are doing your small part. I asked each of these people about this and how they manage those feelings and push through them. 
most of us could be doing more, but I also think that a lot of us are just doing what we can. Yeah. And I try really hard to remember that like, there's always work to be done, but I don't always have to be working. Yeah. And I think being able to like transition through different phases and learning to acknowledge cycles, right, of engagement and being comfortable with them. When I was a little bit younger, that's when I was doing the most advocacy work that I definitely could do at the time and activism and artwork that connected to all those things. And it was very tactile and tied to outcomes that were tangible and measurable and felt really solid and real to me at the time. And sometimes I like miss that time because it was easy for me to say, I am doing work every day. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, you know, I went into grad school the same time I got married and had a baby. Nothing changes, I mean, there's lots of things that change your life, but my ability to make decisions about my time, it shifts when you have a kid and you have a partner who you're like committed to for life, supposedly, right? <laughs> and, and then on top of grad school, and I still had my part-time job at the nonprofit. So towards the beginning of that time, I took a break from the work I was doing around sexual assault because it got really hard for me personally. Like I was getting calls every week from people who had experienced trauma and I was wanting to help everyone and I was like, actually, this is like really starting to hurt me. Yeah. What can I do? What is safe? What boundaries do I need? What cycles of in and out of this work can I take? And then what does it look like if I'm not doing this work? What is the work I need doing? I'm still making work about gender-based violence, labor and care or whatever. Yeah. So after grad school, <laughs> I did feel burned out in a way that did not feel like I could bounce back from in the way that I had. I remained for a long time not public facing here. And that was like an act of choice. I still supported people here in various ways, but it's not the same as lobbying every day at the legislature, yeah. right? So it's harder to measure, but I don't know that it makes it less valuable. It's just a different phase. My stepmother is a pro bono lawyer. She's doing this very important work all over the country, and she's so brilliant, but she's also one of those people who like work all the time. But even she is learning. She has to give herself time to step away and to do other things. And my, my hope is just always that those periods when it's I don't want to for whatever reason, that that is a shorter period than the periods when I want to. Yeah. It honestly hurts my heart every day that, you know, I talk to people and I kind of know what they're going through. Um, it can be challenging to balance the passion that I have for the cause with the recognition of the larger societal forces at play. But it's also crucial to do so in order to create a lasting change. Like, where do we start? What is incarceration? What is the alternative to incarceration? Does incarceration really rehabilitate people? Does putting people in solitary confinement and then just, you know, releasing them benefit society? It doesn't. It, sometimes it gets overwhelming because we always talk about justice reform and everything and nothing changes. But it's like nothing to change if only one person is doing it or two people is doing it or five people is doing it. I want to help everybody, but I know I can't help everybody. So it also requires, you know, recognizing that the solution is not solely individual, like I said, but rather a collective effort. You have to be in motion. You have to feel like you're in motion doing something. Even though this stuff is still going on, all of the feelings of being overwhelmed and hopeless and like you're you know, Sisyphus rolling this rock up a hill. They go away, they don't completely go away, but they lessen. You and I have talked a lot about different ways of being activists. And if I can share some of the fact that you are, are an introvert, you say that you're an introvert and you're stretching yourself to be more public facing, but you also have a really good set of skills at organizing in, in this podcast and thinking of ways to motivate people. 
Activism isn't always being out front, shouting, holding the sign. I have done that a handful of times. My activism is much more with the work I put out, the work I'm doing in my studio, what I'm thinking about, what I'm trying to process, mm -hmm. as well as my work with kids. Mm -hmm. Because that's how you put new ideas into society is by educating the people who are gonna be there when we're gone. So we used to say when I grew up in Atlanta, you better get in where you fit in. And that's what it's all about. It's like, where do you fit? So maybe you're a good fundraiser, a good writer. Maybe you're better at public speaking. Maybe you're better at art. Think about what you may do in your profession that you're really good at that could help an organization. Where can I bring work that is important and impactful into the things that I am already doing? Like maybe I don't have a lot of time because I have a part-time job, day job and I have an art career child that I'm the primary caregiver of and I run this nonprofit gallery that I don't get paid for but is basically like another job right yeah so then what are the other privileges I have that enable me to do work and even splitting time between two communities I have two very strong networks in both communities right I still get texts or emails or phone calls from people once a month like hey this person is experiencing this problem who do I talk to that is a power that I've had for a long time just because of the nature of the work I've done. Yeah. And I don't always know the answer, but I can usually find someone who knows the answer, and so that's easy for me, right? Yeah. Money is a big one. I think most of us can probably give more money than we do. I think about a lot of the like frivolous things I spend money on, and I'm like, Ugh. Also, there's this constant question of like, how much do you deny yourself certain pleasures? So there's this constant push-pull there that I think almost nobody's probably super honest with themselves about, right? right. But I, I try to do my best and I hope that other people do too. I think physical ability is a big thing that we don't talk enough about. I really struggle to do certain physical activism now um, in ways that I didn't used to. Like, so going to rallies or protests can be really hard for me. I, I mean, I get anxious in like <laughs> trains, you know? And so like, and then like I went to a concert for the first time a few months ago and I got, I like had to leave because I was so anxious. I can't really imagine going to a protest right now and not physically being very, very uncomfortable. And you know, then there's the weight of like, is my discomfort less important than what's happening and so there's a question there but I also think there's other ways to engage right mm -hmm. and then that's just physical discomfort or anxiety what about folks who health-wise cannot attend certain events or be in certain spaces either because they're at risk of certain health problems or they just they're not accessible I think it's the responsibility of people who have certain privileges or whatever to labor in the service and care of others to their capacity, right? But I don't think that every person with privilege has the same amount of capacity because every person's privilege is different, right? Yeah. I think that question that we have to ask ourselves as individuals and as community, like what are the realities of our capacity? And then what are our expectations of others? And how do we align those things? It's easy to look at people and be like, well, this person has money, time, they should be doing all of this. But the reality is we don't really know what most people are doing or not doing. Not like in a bad way, but just like in a way that it's very difficult to know other people no matter how close you are to them. Forgetting any assumptions and just talking and like asking people, okay, what are your capacities? What are your expectations of me? Here are the expectations I have of you. My capacity has changed a lot in the past few years. And so learning how to acknowledge that in a way that 
means that I can keep doing the work without fucking everything up. Right. (laughs) You know, because you have to be able, if you say you're going to do something, you have to then do it. Follow through is very important in community work. And there have been times when I've been very bad at that because I've been exceeding my capacity in a very serious way. And I've gotten better at learning when that happens and when I need to pull back or when I need to just pay attention more to scheduling or like managing the time in such a way. I definitely now I set boundaries for myself. I didn't then and I should have. I just didn't know how. I had upwards of a thousand people messaging me in the span of two days and people who were really in deep pain or people who were just telling me like, thank you for doing this. Or there were people who were like, fuck you, you know? So it was interesting too. The negative ones would always stick with me, which sucks. I don't know why that happens, but I think now a big part of it is doing the work in other ways, you know, through art, especially since a lot of my art is about figuring out gender, figuring out sexuality, figuring out like what it's like to feel disembodied at times, especially as a sexual assault survivor, you know? It's not that I don't respond to people or communicate with people anymore about these things. I will help in any way I can. I mean, there was this person, I think she went to Carmel High or is going there now. She reached out to me and she said, I've been trying to find the words for what like I've been going through and your last piece said it perfectly. Like, thank you so much for, you know, just super appreciative that I had shared something vulnerable about myself. And I didn't think anyone was gonna understand it, you know? And that right there is doing the work, but from, you know, in a healing way, you know, not in a way where I'm like, I'll be there for you and we will talk this out. And like staying on Instagram for hours responding to messages, like I did do that and I was glad that I could help, but I was so depleted at the end of the day and really not mentally well, because I was just there so much for other people. I wasn't there for myself. You know, when you're giving, out your mental energy, you need to make sure you have enough in your wallet for yourself. I really do like mental health check-ins with my friends. I'm like, okay, how are you doing? I allow an open door policy with my messages on social media that people can reach out to me and talk to me. When I was going through things, battling depression while I was incarcerated, I was wondering like, oh my gosh, it's 2015, it's 2016, it's 2017. I would listen to music and I would write a lot. Like I wrote two books, but I never published them. And I also did drawing. And that's where I learned that I could really draw, which I don't do anymore. But um, what helps me now is I just try to set achievable goals for myself. If I try to write down goals that are large and I don't, you know, hit those goals and I get disappointed. So I don't set a specific date for them. I've taken time and effort to understand what my strengths are and my weaknesses. I actually have them written down. Like, okay, I need to work on this. Or, okay, I need to work on that. I also seek support from people who believe in me and my potential, whether that's family, friends, or mentors. You can surround yourself with people who just want to know your story just to be nosy. They don't want to help you. They just want to know so they can go repeat it. But you have to know who to surround yourself with that really wants to see the best for you. That's really going to, you know, allow you to grow into a better person. Because you can talk to friends and they can, you know, lead you in a negative direction, you know, amp up your, your pettiness or your irrational thinking. As I've learned, I'm allowed to choose who to surround myself with, whether it's family, friends, or whoever. Those people in my safety net, I call them, their encouragement and guidance have helped me and keep me motivated and focused on my goals. 
I'm really diligent. Like I have a five-year-old. My partner and I both have very non-traditional jobs and travel a lot for our jobs. So when we're in the same place, it's very important that we have a certain amount of time at the end of each day where all three of us are together. Even if we're like kind of just in the same room, one of us is reading, one of us is like cooking and like our daughter is like playing with a game or something, you know, like we're still together. And that's that's something I'm pretty strict about. Similarly, like I'm pretty protective of a day a week. Like I don't work, I don't answer emails, I sometimes don't even answer texts. And that's taken a lot too, like I'll sometimes want to answer work emails on that day and sometimes I'll get like a text in an email and a phone call and I might text back and be like, I will answer you tomorrow, <laughs> you know? But yeah. it's, and so that communication is important too, but there's there's got to be a space where I'm allowed to, and where everybody should be allowed to just rest. <laughs> it's e- I mean, it's, and it's so easy too because it's there and you're like, okay, it'll just take a couple minutes, yeah. but, but you know that's not really true yeah. because you know then there'll be a response and then you have to send another, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. I feel like there's almost good work to be done in setting those boundaries and communicating them clearly to others. So they're like, oh wait, maybe I should have that boundary too, you yeah. know? The push and pull between caring for yourself and stretching yourself is quickly becoming a recurring theme in this project. And the importance of being open to opportunities and changes, especially when they're not planned, and even when they're hard, keeps coming up too. So six or seven years ago, I was asked to do an art exhibit for Black History Month in San Jose, right after Trump had been inaugurated. And my work is very um, honest. Some say it's confrontational. I took on the project. I curated a show. It was in a the administrative offices of a, of a public school district that is heavily Latino and, and Asian. And the art was taken down less than 24 hours after it went up because it offended the superintendent of the school district. He was offended by my work. And I was very upset about that and uh, thought it was a failure. I told a friend just by chance because I was upset and, and, and my friend was like, hey, you know, that's censorship and the superintendent of the school is a publicly elected official. They can't do that. Maybe you should talk to someone in the press about it. So I reached out to these two reporters and it went all the way to New York and around the world. I got people from Russia emailing me about wanting to use my work in their classes and all over, I mean, it was amazing outpouring. That wasn't the victory. The victory was because it made the news, they interviewed the school superintendent. He was in a little bit of hot water. They decided to invite me to a school board meeting to talk about my work. And why I was so upset that they took it down in a high school where we should be having these conversations. These kids are aware of what's going on in the news and people being deported and all, all of this animosity towards them. Yet we're expecting them to study and make straight A's and a number of them know someone who's here illegally, have a relative who's here illegally, a friend, crushing my exhibit because you were offended or uncomfortable, but then you're leaving a whole swath of young people hanging out to dry. And when I asked the superintendent about that in the first meeting I had with him, there was no contingency plan, none, zero. I was invited back to present my work in front of like five different high school groups. Originally, my work was just supposed to be in these administrative offices that only teachers and administrators would have seen. It ended up allowing me to talk to high school students about what was going on in America at that time. And I was very nervous. I'm not going to lie to you. I had never spoken in front of any high school students, never spoken 
in front of more than 10 or 15 people. I was in like auditoriums full of hundreds of students and it stretched me. So you have to be resilient and you have to be open. What looks like failure can often turn into a victory. I split time between Florida and Georgia, right? And so when I moved to Florida <laughs> um, from Atlanta, my home there is in this very small rural town. It's like 6,000 people, predominantly conservative and also a predominantly older population. And in my mind, I was like, I'm gonna curate great shows of like regional artists that I think are making really challenging work so that this town can be like blown away by some work that they've never seen before because there really wasn't a lot of non-commercial artwork around. Like it's actually a very artsy town. There's tons of beautiful paintings of the springs or the forests and stuff in Florida. And I was like, I'm gonna bring something else. You know, usually I would have waited longer and gotten to know people more about like what they wanted, but I was just so desperate. And that's not really how you build community in like yeah. the right way. But then what happened is that I didn't just open like a gallery with artwork that no one had ever seen before. I also started doing workshops and art classes for all ages and youth that were very accessible, meaning I like didn't charge for anything. Mm -hmm. Everything was free. Like all you had to do was come, right? Yeah. And because I did that, I was able to, one, meet community who was interested in what I was doing, but also learn from those people what the community actually wanted and needed, especially for the youth. And the people were telling me basically like, there's nothing out here for kids who don't like sports. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, well, this is something I can do. And we now host like an after-school arts program there, and then we run a summer arts camp. And so that was very successful, so much so that like our summer camp this summer is was full after a week and I'm very sadly having to like turn kids away because we just don't have room. <laughs> I mean, it seems really dumb now like in hindsight, but I'm like what an impact it has to like work with kids, especially kids who you can give access to things that they are not accessing anywhere else, you know? And I, only, I was only able to learn that the community needed that, wanted that because of listening to people once I did kind of rush into it and like, I just never loved working with kids when I was younger, and now I'm like so in love with it. Like we should celebrate that. Yes. And I feel like as a culture, our insistence on holding on to people as they were instead of as they are presenting themselves now, I mean, it's not the biggest problem. And I can understand wanting people to acknowledge behavior or things that were done or said in the past that were not good. But we also have to be willing to hear what they're saying now because it's too easy to then just say that people don't change. College Jessica, like undergrad, she didn't give a shit about anything. And if people, <laughs> luckily the internet was really different back then too, because if people held me to the shit I did then, and this, I used to say this a lot when I was a domestic violence advocate, to do that work, I had to believe that restorative justice works and that people change, especially within our own communities, to like not believe that people that are working with us can, are capable of change and learning seems like a mistake yeah. to me. Yeah. So there's a case for making lemonade out of people and groups of people. We can maybe even extend that to a city or a country or a high school. Yeah, because Carmel Valley is super small. It's a community, whether people want to call it that or not, everyone is deeply connected to each other. 
I associate a lot of pain with that place, but there's also so much love there. Like I've, you know, I met my boyfriend there and I met his family there and I, you know, some of my best friends are from there. You know, it's just yeah. my boyfriend's family really got me through so much of it. I honestly got pretty agoraphobic at the time because I was so scared of going outside and I would see people. My abuser was like two streets over. Some of his best friends were neighbors. And I was working at Whole Foods, which all the rich moms go to. <laughs> and all these rich moms were the ones who were defending their sons. I would get phone calls, voicemails. They would, they, one of them, you know, called my boyfriend's mom and was ranting to her and saying all these horrible things about me. And my boyfriend's mom was awesome. She stood up for me and she was like, no, this isn't gonna happen. But you know, even if you're in the most isolated place, Someone's going to be there for you, and those are the things that you need to hold on to the most. Um, it is confusing for me to feel like I love the place. You know, everything that has to do with it, I just don't even want to think about it sometimes. But I've done so much for it. So, yeah, I don't know. So the biggest conflicting truth for me right now is the love-hate that I have for this country. I'm really the first generation of African Americans in this country that were born with full citizenship. So my sister was born in 1964. She could be legally discriminated against in education, housing. She wouldn't have had the right to vote were she 18. When I was born, laws had been passed to eliminate, air quotes, those mm -hmm. things, right? But there's still a bunch of people that were left behind. It was also pre the advent of social media. So we weren't seeing these things that were still going on, but we weren't seeing them every other week like we are now to now have all these questions about the country that I, I once thought so differently about, that I was once indoctrinated to feel so differently about. I'm really struggling with caring, quite honestly, what happens to it. But then at the same time, this country would not be where it is without the contributions of my ancestors. No way. My mom's mom was a domestic all her life. My great-grandfather on my father's side was born into slavery. So, so those type of things, when I think about those type of things and the struggles of others that fought for equality, it becomes harder to just say, the hell with it. If you're, if you're trying to swim the English Channel and you get halfway out and you realize you're tired and you're like, I can't make it. Well, you still have to swim back. You might as well keep going because it's the same distance. To give up would feel worse because then I'm hopeless and I'm not doing anything. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the, the last black man in San Francisco. Yes. But when he says, you can't hate it if you don't love it. Exactly. If you didn't love him, you wouldn't care. Right. There would be no it's hate. Just it, apathy. Would, it would just, just yeah. be apathy. And so I try, to, I try to operate with that sort of mentality when it's really tough. Who's this human being in front of me? Here's an opportunity to demonstrate and exhibit love, compassion, empathy, so that when they leave me, Hopefully they're better off than they were, so it's a ripple effect. Yeah. I found comfort in my prison family. Like it was hard, especially on the holidays, but you know, we had our little holiday parties, we gave each other gifts, we built a bond, we built a whole family because we all felt that strain being with our kids, being with our friends or our loved ones. We kept hope. I was reminded when editing this about one of the earliest examples in my own life of this tendency for people to band together when times are hard. And that was Katrina. 
There's a lot to be said about the storm and the failure of a response from government and the fact that people only needed to help each other because the city's rescue response was so bad. But I made an audio collage back in 2017 about something different. I collected stories from some of my family and friends about melancholy and how tragedies can create something really powerful when we recognize what we have to lose. I'll end with it as a reminder that sometimes the most powerful things can come from some of the worst if we remember to fight for them. Pure, unadulterated awe. Katrina was heading our way. As I looked out the windows, Katrina took down the dolmas off of the roof and thousands of trees disappeared. Down pine trees, Howling oak winds, trees everywhere. A hundred year old oak tree Decade fell old over pines and toppling all as the if they roots were merely came hollow up. And without Hardly roots. any access to FEMA trailers or Separated. generators. It seemed like everything away from the was family going wrong. All the sorrow and destroyed physically and emotionally. Taking showers with a flashlight propped in the corner. The brutal heat of People had stayed too long Families that were stranded on rooftops. Huge losses and devastation. Flood water city. and wind damage. The destruction of my mother's yoga studio. My mother's old house. This old building that we had. That I lived in growing up. Our apartment house in Mississippi was demolished. Hurricane Katrina came in and just wiped the whole place out. The house was made of cypress. Becky died six years before Katrina. Beyond repair. Her house is gone. The power of nature to clear everything in its path. People's memories were wiped clear away. What do you call it? I think it was just that. I feel nostalgic. I feel sad. I do feel a sense of sadness because of what was lost in the storm. I feel melancholy every time I think of Katrina. I felt constant melancholy. I find it hard to repress any emotion. Melancholy people feeling. People mourned a sense of nostalgia. Well, people remembered. Envisioning. my memories. When I think, I think about Katrina, New Orleans I after Katrina. The good times. Every day when I go home, we still have a big old sinking part of our backyard where that 100-year-old oak tree fell over and I used to play tag around it with my sister. When I drive by that place. You remember what happened. I get flashbacks. Pine trees and oak trees and everywhere. You remember what happened how much after of my childhood it. Was spent. And you remember that yoga studio. Why it was roots. such a good time when it so was. So much history and fond memories of the past. And I think that actually helped in a very positive way. You couldn't call it a morning either because the city had grown to be so resilient and has made leaps and bounds to overcome the difficulties since Katrina. In the aftermath of Katrina. Witnessing, experiencing, and recovering from the destruction. You see where we are. Well, Hurricane Katrina did take a lot from people. It prospered so much growth and so much made hope Louisiana for the future. And its residents far more fortitudinous and appreciative of the progress we have Appreciate made. Appreciate what matters Katrina most. Katrina made us all stronger. all at any moment. Those who survived it. Pure, unadulterated awe. Awe not only at the power of nature to clear everything in its path, but also awe in the ability of a state to emerge from such a disaster with as much vivacity and stoicism as Louisiana has. The people, we rebuild the economy, rebuilding in, in almost every aspect every of life. Aspect. the streets of my neighborhood. And we saw the stories of charity and service. During a very stressful time. A city loyalty and love. Worked long days and nights and provided help and inspiration to those in need. Were inspiring. food, water, and supplies. And as beautiful as Katrina was Saved ugly. over 200 people bringing families that were stranded on that rooftops to safety. That brought out the good in every and people were so open and connected. Katrina showed us that our country is full of angels. And it was a melancholy feeling, but they remembered 
and melancholy together with the family. My family and I, my brother, sister, father, mother, and board I, games. So time out of I our day. Candles. My sister. Our source of light. I don't think New Orleanians could ever forget the bad of Katrina, but I think. The good nostalgia is what filled people with so much pride to continue to endure and rebuild. Without that melancholy feeling that we had, I don't think we would have had that strong of a response. It's still a source of pride. And I'm proud. So thankful. That sense of hope. Somewhat sad, but mostly proud that about. That joie de of the Big Easy. It's just something that... Continued to stand the test of time. The sun comes in many different forms. The voices in that audio collage were Connor Allison, Seth Jacobs, Hannah Beale, Keith Geller, Bonnie and Sue Blundell, Jackson and Daryl Merle, and Hunter Simonson. Most of the other music was from Nat Keefe and Hot Buttered Rum again, with two in the middle from Telecasted and Dan Lebowitz in order. And for an outro, enjoy this redo of This Land Is Your Land by my friend Maury. As I went walking, I felt my footfalls, felt layers below me of violent outfalls, of sublime beauty, of secret stories, something we know and have to see. My mother whispered, she sang a sad song, she held me close and I saw her scars as my tears fell softly, she kept singing, something we know and have to see. There's something you know, there's something I know About Ogapoge and the granite half dome About the redwood forests and the Gulf Stream waters Something we know and have to see Call me naive, I surely am I'm blind and ignorant but I'm trying to plan Now the world's on fire And we call it freedom Something we know and have to see Nobody living can ever turn back We can't undo what's already done Nobody living can ever stop time Something we know and have to see When the sun comes shining Then I'll be strolling With the wheat fields waving And the dust clouds rolling When the fog is lifting Then we'll be singing Something we know and have to see I'll link her music project called Memento Mori plus Jay Lee's Business, Inmates RS, and Mark Eatzel and Jessica's Art in the description.